Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, aka Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. Happy December. Happy St. Nicholas Day. When we were freshmen, Maria and I put our shoes outside our dorm rooms and someone filled mine and we still don't know who it was. I mean, we have a guess, but we don't know for certain. Anyway, that story has nothing to do with anything except for perhaps that brief cameo from one Triumvir Calaroi. Anyway, today we continue our journey with Aeneas and his crew. We are up to book six. Aeneas has buried his father and left Sicily because that's what he's supposed to do. We pick up with our merry band of Trojans landing at Cumae. Remember Daedalus? Okay, did you ever watch Disney's Hercules TV series? One of the things I love about that show is that Herc's BFF is Icarus, who calls his father Daedalus. That's me. Anyway, I digress. You know, Daedalus, with the wings made of wax and feathers. Well, after Icarus flew too close to the sun, Daedalus flew on and landed at Cumae. And then he built a temple to Apollo, and that is where we now find our intrepid hero and his crew. Just as at the temple to Apollo in Delphi, this temple also houses a Sibyl through whom Apollo delivers his prophecies. And as Sibyls are wont to do, she tells Aeneas where to go and what he can do when he gets there. Go to Italy, fight a war, it won't be pretty. Don't worry though, we'll get to those books, so I will spare you the Sibyl's details on that count. Aeneas says that he really wants to get some fatherly advice before this, and the Sibyl obliges with instructions on how to go to the underworld. That part is easy. <laughs> Coming back, however, can be a little bit trickier. Fortunately, the Sibyl knows the secret. There's this golden bow, but only one fated to pull down that bow will be able to do so, kind of like if it were a sword that's stuck in a stone that only the true king of the Britons can... Sorry. I'm getting into the wrong story, aren't I? Same basic motif, though. It's about a golden bow, not a sword. Um, but anyway, Proserpina, Queen of the Dead, would love that golden bow. She'd love it so much that if the person fated to break that bow were to give it to her, she would totally let them return to the world of the living. There is one catch. Aeneas should go and bury Mycenas first. This is news to Aeneas. It's the first he's heard that Mycenas is dead. He and Akates go down to the shore, and sure enough, there's Mycenas's body washed up on shore. Aeneas leads the Trojans through a much shorter funeral than the one that we saw in Book 5, and Aeneas prays for help in finding the golden bow. You'll never guess who helps out. You'll totally guess. It's Venus, of course. She sends a couple of doves who lead the way, like... Like the robin in the secret garden, which <laughs> I'd never made that connection before today. Anyway, they finish the funeral, and Aeneas names the spot Mycenum after Mycenus, and having secured the golden bow, the Sibyl shows Aeneas the way to the entrance to the underworld. There, Aeneas sees any number of monsters, or at least their ghosts, and he starts to draw his sword, but the Sibyl rolls her eyes and reminds him that his weapons won't do anything to them, and that they're ghosts and can't do anything to him either. She continues to guide him deeper until they reach the river Styx. 
The shore is crowded with those who cannot cross because they haven't received a proper burial, and there Aeneas finds the shade of Pelinerus, the helmsman who was sacrificed to Poseidon at the end of Book 5. Aeneas shakes his head. Apollo had promised that Pelinerus would reach Italy alive. Now, Pelinerus tells him, well, you know, actually he did. After falling overboard, he made it to shore, and that's where he was killed. He begs for help crossing the sticks, but the Sibyl says that he'll be remembered on Earth, which apparently is good enough for now. Chiron stops them from boarding his boat. I mean, he's already let Hercules cross while still alive. And Theseus. And Pirithous. I mean, sure, Aeneas is a demigod too, but at least those three were gods on their father's side. Well, Aeneas is a god on his mother's side, and well, you know, women... Even Venus's blood isn't good enough. But the golden bough proves its worth, and he steps aside when it is shown to him. Having made it across the sticks, the Sibyl tosses a Scooby snack to Kerberos, and our two travelers easily pass by that three-headed dog as he sleeps. And now Aeneas encounters the dead. The first group are those who have died prematurely. Infants. Suicides. Those who were falsely accused. That second category? Uh, Remember anyone in this epic who might fit? Yep. Aeneas finally learns what happened in Carthage after he left. Or sort of. He sees Dido amongst these prematurely dead. And he understands that she might have killed herself. He calls out to her and tries to apologize. But she wants nothing to do with him. Which means she has come to her senses in death. Instead, she turns to the shade of her husband, Sicaeus, who, you will recall, was murdered and can therefore also be counted amongst the prematurely dead, and who returns her love with his own, which is a lot more than can be said for how Aeneas treated her in life. The next group of shades that Aeneas encounters are the war heroes, both Greek and Trojan. He even talks to Deiphobus, who tells how his own wife betrayed him to the Greeks before the Sibyl urges Aeneas to continue before it gets too late. They do continue on past Tartarus, including some lovely detail about the various people who are being tortured there and how. And finally, they reach heaven, the blessed groves, the Elysian fields. Aeneas leaves the golden bough at the gate and seeks out Anchises. Anchises is thrilled to see his son and vice versa. Aeneas tries three times to hug his father, forgetting that a ghost has no solid substance. Then they content themselves with just talking. Aeneas asks who those shades are over by that river, and Anchises explains. These are souls that have completely washed away their past lives and are prepared to be reborn. And be reborn they will, as all of these great Romans who have yet to be born from the perspective of Aeneas and our great historical figures from the perspective of Virgil and his audience. I believe my marginalia will suffice to describe what comes next. A parade of Roman historical characters. It is interesting to note that this parade makes no mention of the fact that Romulus kills Remus as part of the founding of Rome, or even that Romulus kills their uncle before he kills Remus. Just saying that it's an interesting thing to omit. Anyway, it all amounts to this sort of funeral procession, um, which was typical in ancient Rome, that that you would have actors 
portray the ancestors of the deceased. So it makes sense. It's a very Roman thing. And there's even the typical panegyric praising the whole Julian dynasty, which you should recall has been, have been started by one Julius Caesar. We get a picture of Roman history up to, I mean, well, Virgil's time, obviously. And suffice it to say that this section goes on for several pages. We really do get Roman history from the founding to the empire. Eventually, it is time to leave. Now, there are two doors through which one can exit the underworld. One is made of horn, and through that gate, all true shades pass. The other is made of ivory, gleaming and flawless, but that door brings false dreams. Aeneas and the Sibyl leave through that second gate. And Aeneas and his crew sail on to Kaita, and that is where the book ends. So what do you think of that ending? Not the very end, not those last few lines, the part right before that, when Aeneas and the Sibyl leave the underworld through the gate of ivory, the gate through which false dreams pass. What does that mean? Is any of this true? It is very easy to talk about the Aeneid as propaganda, but this book throws a wrench in that theory. I mean, to begin with, Virgil is hesitant to tell this part of the story, the part in the underworld, to quote Fitzgerald, this one line, may it be right to tell what I have heard? Why? Does Virgil not want to say because this is not, in fact, propaganda? There is a whole school of thought proposing that this epic is pessimism, not propaganda, and book six is a strong supporter of that theory. Because why would Aeneas leave through the gate of ivory if the Roman state were really all that? What do you think? Is Virgil the great propagandist that he seemed to be up to this point? Or is he subtly undermining the authority of the Roman Empire and pointing out all of its flaws? Think about Carthage. We saw Carthage as this magnificent city, but we know that by the time of Virgil, Rome has destroyed Carthage. And so, what also does this tell us about the stories we tell to ourselves today, about our own histories? I am recording this the week before American Thanksgiving, and oh, do we tell ourselves stories about that Thanksgiving, which are totally not true. So what do we do about that? Pop over to the blog and share your thoughts. It's at triumvircleo.school.blog. The URL is in the show notes. If I can find a public domain or Creative Commons copy of how Michelangelo depicts the Cumaean Sibyl on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, I will post that on the blog too. I haven't found one yet, but that doesn't mean I won't by the time this drops. (laughs) You can also find me on Patreon as Triumvir Clio. In the next episode, we'll cover Chapter 6 of Book 2 of the Biblioteca. Talk to you then.
You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.